welcome to the Clerk Commute Podcast. Where we discuss clerkship content, share up-to-date research, work through interesting cases, and gather position advice for your next rotation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Clerk Commute Podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing the topic of delirium, which is a very common issue on the wards and can be tricky for medical students to diagnose. This episode was edited by Dr. Eric Wong, a staff geriatrician at Unity Health. So for the first part of the episode, we're going to discuss delirium versus dementia and how to use the confusion assessment method. So I remember from pre-clerkship that delirium is an acute change in mental status that commonly occurs in hospitalized patients. But going into clerkship, I'm worried about how I'm going to distinguish delirium from pre-existing dementia. That's a really common concern and a great place to start. At the medical student level, it's very important that we differentiate between the concepts of delirium and dementia as they are frequently confused. Dementia refers to a chronic progressive decline in memory, along with one other domain of cognition among personality, abstract thinking, language, executive functioning, complex attention, and visual spatial skills. By definition, dementia must lead to an impairment to the patient's function. For example, their activities of daily living or instrumental activities of daily living for there to be a diagnosis. Delirium is distinct from dementia in that is an acute state of confusion as opposed to a more chronic and progressive phenomenon as is seen in dementia. The CAM or confusion assessment method is a common tool to screen for and diagnose delirium. Using the CAM, a diagnosis of delirium is suggested when patients have both one, acute onset and fluctuating course, and two, inattention, plus one of three, disorganized thinking, and four, altered level of consciousness. And this can include reduced level of consciousness, for example, solemnance or agitation. Part of the complexity of delirium is that there's a great amount of variability within the clinical presentation. Thanks, Alex. This is really helpful. This has been a concept that has definitely confused me a bit, so I'm glad we cleared it up. Just to repeat, if there's acute onset and fluctuating course and inattention with one of disorganized thinking or altered level of consciousness, then we can make the diagnosis of delirium. Perfect. Now that we have that down, let's move on to the pathophysiology and common causes of delirium, or DIMS. So do you know about the pathophysiology of delirium and some of the most common causes that you might expect to see on the wards? To be honest, I don't understand the exact pathophysiology of delirium. I know that there are a wide range of causes though. Sometimes it can be drug-induced. Sometimes it can happen post-surgically. I know that there are many causes, but I can't name them all. That's okay. We can go over it together. So at present, physicians and scientists have not established a single pathophysiological mechanism for delirium. I like to think of delirium as something that all patients are vulnerable to that can be brought on by some acute precipitant. Some patients are more vulnerable to delirium. That is, they have more predisposing factors. The more vulnerable a person is, the more sensitive they are to minor precipitants. For example, a young robust patient may not get delirium unless they are critically ill in the intensive care unit while an older, frail patient may get delirium from a simple UTI or a new anticholinergic medication. Okay, that makes sense. But what exactly makes a patient more vulnerable to developing delirium? 
Well, there's a wide variety of both the predisposing factors and the acute stressors. So some predisposing factors or risk factors for delirium include underlying dementia, stroke, Parkinson's dementia, older age, sensory impairment, so vision or hearing impairment. And these predisposing factors all lead to changes in brain connectivity, neuroinflammatory alterations, glial cell alterations, and vascular changes that increase a patient's risk of delirium. On top of predisposing factors, an acute precipitant or stressor is required to cause delirium. You're correct in mentioning that the list of possible acute stressors is broad. They can include infections, dehydration, immobility, polypharmacy, especially with psychoactive drugs, malnutrition, bladder catheters, post-surgical stress, head injury, and much more. A great way of remembering and organizing these causes is the acronym DIMS, which stands for D, drugs, I, infections, M, metabolic, and S, structural causes. Maybe we should work through each of these categories and the specific causes of delirium that fall under each letter. Absolutely. So let's start with D for drugs. So for drugs, we have sedating drugs such as benzodiazepines, opioids, and anticholinergic drugs, as well as alcohol intoxication or withdrawal. I for infections. So some common infections that we see are UTIs, pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infections, as well as CNS infections. In terms of metabolic causes, we have electrolyte disturbances such as hypo or hypernatremia, hypo or hypercalcemia, hypoglycemia, B12 or thiamine deficiency, and hypothyroidism. And finally, for structural causes, we have things including stroke, seizures, tumors or brain metastases, urinary retention, and brain injury. That mnemonic definitely makes it easier to remember all of the causes. It sure does. Now that we've gone over some of the definitions, pathophysiology, and risk factors, I think it would be helpful to work through a case together. So this evening, we are going to be seeing Mrs. M, an 84-year-old woman who was admitted to hospital with a small bowel obstruction arising from adhesions four days ago. She presented to the hospital four days ago with crampy abdominal pain, abdominal swelling, constipation, vomiting, and an inability to have a bowel movement or to pass gas. She was treated with IV fluids placed into her vein and a nasogastric tube to reduce the abdominal swelling. While the swelling and pain had reduced in her abdomen, her husband, who has been in the hospital during the day with her, mentioned she had started to develop confusion on the fourth day of her hospital stay. He described that she has developed sudden onset confusion, forgetting where she is, forgetting who her husband is, forgetting her reason for being in hospital. He also notes that this confusion seems to fluctuate throughout the day and that she seems to be more aware in the mornings. The other piece that he mentions is that she seems to have increased urinary frequency. He mentions that one hour ago, she became very frustrated with her husband and threw an open carton of milk at him. Mr. M is highly concerned about his wife's cognitive state. What would you do first? So first, I think we would need to do a focus history and run some investigations before we proceed. Additionally, if the patient is at risk of harming themselves or others, then we may need to use chemical or physical restraints. Okay, that's pretty good. What do we think is a bit unique about the history that we are going to take? Hmm, we need it to be quite focused and prompt. This is true, but it's not quite what I was looking for, as there are many cases on the words where we need to get a concise, efficient history. What I was thinking of was a collateral history, 
If the patient has an acute change in their cognition and is agitated, then it might be tough to get a history directly from our patient. So we should be consulting any friend or family member that the patient has been with them in the hospital. It is also important to try to gather as much information as possible from all members of the healthcare team who have cared for the patient. So what do you think you'd want to ask her husband? So first I'd like to ask him about the patient's baseline function and cognitive status. Then I would proceed to ask about what exactly has been going on in the acute period. How has her behavior changed in the past few days or hours? Mr. M mentions to you that his wife started behaving quite differently two hours ago. Can you explain to me what he means by different? How did this sudden change in behavior come on? He says that just after lunch today around 1 p.m. that his wife suddenly started making no sense. She was saying that she didn't know where she was and was questioning everything around her. She forgot who her husband was and became very agitated. She even threw a carton of milk at him. That sounds concerning. Was there any provoking stress that she had right before this? Her husband mentions that he doesn't quite understand what you mean. Uh, Let me clarify. When I talk about provoking stress, I'm referring to events like a fall with a head injury or a new fever. I think you've gotten the right approach, but I would like to jump in here because I think there's a bit faster or more organized approach that we can take to the patient. Let's step back and apply our CAM, Confusion Assessment Method Tool, to determine if the patient has delirium. How would you ask about each of the four CAM criteria? Okay, let's work through the four CAM criteria. The first is acute onset and a fluctuating course. For this one, we want to ask about whether the change in mental status was acute and and inquire about the patient's baseline functioning. We also want to ask if there are fluctuations in this behavior during the day. Next is inattention. We would want to know if the patient is having issues with focusing their attention. Are they having trouble concentrating on what is being said to them? Both these two criteria, acute onset and fluctuating course and inattention are required for a diagnosis of delirium. That was awesome. Great job. Just breaking down criteria number two further, do you know any ways which we can test for inattention? For an objective test of inattention, you can ask the patient to recite the months of the year backwards, starting at December and going back to January. Note the number of errors, and if they get more than one error, then the patient is inattentive. Great. And do you remember what the other two CAM criteria are? Yes. So criteria three is disorganized thinking and four is altered level of consciousness. We need just one of these for diagnosis. So for disorganized thinking, I would ask if the patient's thinking is disorganized or incoherent. For example, are they rambling and having illogical flow of ideas or is the patient hallucinating or having delusions? For the fourth criteria, I would ask them to rate the the level of consciousness, starting with alert, which is normal, then vigilant, which is hyper alert, then lethargic, which is drowsy and easily aroused, to stupor, which is difficult to arouse, and then finally coma, which can't be aroused. Anything other than alert is abnormal and is considered to be a change in the patient's baseline level of consciousness. That's exactly right. Since you were talking about all the different levels of consciousness, now is a good time to mention that there are numerous subtypes of delirium. So first we have hyperactive delirium, which is characterized by agitation, disorientation, delusion. Patients with this subtype might also have hallucinations. 
Next is hypoactive delirium. So here the patient may be more apathetic, subdued, quietly confused, or disoriented. And finally, mixed motor delirium, which features fluctuations between hyperactive and hypoactive subtypes. Now getting back to our case, you ask Mrs. M these questions about the CAM, and he reports the following. First, for acute change in fluctuating course, he reports a change in Mrs. M's cognition over the last two to four hours. Her behavior has fluctuated throughout the day, alternating between being very agitated and very angry and drowsy. Second, for inattention, he reports that she has not been able to focus on what he and the nurses and physician's assistant are saying to them. Her attention has been shifting away from the conversation. For number three, disorganized thinking, he reports that she has had illogical streams of thought come in during one of the nursing visits where she mentions that she thought the government was trying to take control of the beeping in hospital and the messages she was seeing on the television programming that she had been watching. And finally, for an altered level of consciousness, there have been points where she has become agitated, throwing the milk carton at him and flipping over her food food tray. She has alternated between this and periods of being very drowsy. Given Mr. M's report, do you think Mrs. M has delirium? Given the positive responses to all four CAM criteria, I do have a high clinical suspicion for delirium, and I think that this is a reasonable diagnosis. What would you want to do next then? We would need to identify the underlying cause. Thinking about the causes of delirium, I know one of them is drugs, so I'd like to ask about her medication history. Her husband tells you that she takes enalapril for hypertension, and she was taking metformin for her type 2 diabetes. He mentions to you that he is very prudent when they are at home, that she never misses her medications, and that her medications have not been changed while she's been in the hospital. He does reiterate that her urinary frequency has been increased. What else is on your differential for delirium? So now I have a low suspicion that this is a drug cause, since her husband told me that she has had no change to her medications in hospital. But I can go through the rest of the DIMS mnemonic we spoke about earlier. Thinking about infection, I would also ask about the frequency of urination, because UTI can be a cause. And it's especially important in this patient, since she has a urinary catheter. Additionally, urinary retention can also be an important trigger. I would also ask about how this patient is eating and drinking over the course of the day. We can also assess for infection or metabolic disturbances on physical exam and through investigations, including blood work and urine analysis. For structural causes, I would want to ask her husband about whether she has had any seizures or if she has an underlying brain disease, such as dementia or mild cognitive impairment. If I'm very concerned, I may order investigations to assess for an intracranial abnormality. These are all good questions to ask and a great approach to the mnemonic. Those are common and important potential stressors that can contribute to an acute delirium and will be important to investigate. The husband denies that she has ever had any seizures. She has no history of dementia or mild cognitive impairment. She has been completely independent in her activities of daily living. And he mentions that she hasn't been eating as much and that she has had poor fluid intake over the course of a day. What would you wanna look for on physical exam? Firstly, I would want to know her vitals. Then I would proceed to complete a neurological exam, a cardiovascular exam, an abdominal exam, giving her presentation to hospital with a small bowel obstruction with adhesions. We'll then order any necessary investigations. Okay, so on your physical exam, you note a heart rate of 110 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of 20 per minute, 
Blood pressure is 135 over 90, temperature 38.5, cardiac exam normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs, respiratory exam, lungs clear to auscultation, good air entry bilaterally, abdominal exam, no distended abdomen with mild tenderness and suprapubic tenderness is noted. Post-void residual volume is 400 milliliters, which is high. Now that you have had the physical exam findings, what are you worried about and what would you do next? So thinking broadly, the fever and tachycardia indicate that the patient likely has a systemic infection, and we would need to consider sepsis here. Blood cultures need to be ordered along with the serum lactate and venous blood gas, and we should start the patient on a broad-spectrum antibiotic while waiting for test results. I think at this point, you also need to make sure that you order serum electrolytes, creatinine, glucose, calcium, complete blood count, urinalysis, and urine culture, B12, and TSH. I would also add a CT head if this patient was presenting with any kind of neurological symptoms. It is going to be important to manage the urinary retention as evidenced by the high post-void residual. In a circumstance like this, we'll need in and out catheterization followed by repeat post-void residuals every six hours. Yes, I agree that we are worried about a bacterial infection here, but I also think that we need to go a bit further and order a culture and sensitivity as we can adjust our antimicrobial coverage depending on the results. It's important to get a culture before starting treatment with antibiotics in order to increase the yield of positive culture, which allows narrowing to an appropriate antibiotic. Yes, that makes sense. I think it's important that we get to the bottom of this and the culture and sensitivity will allow us to do so and make sure that we adjust the coverage appropriately. Do you know of any other interventions at this time? Well, I'm trying to think of some medications maybe for managing delirium. Thinking outside of medications, there are actually non-pharmacologic therapies that are effective in preventing and treating delirium. North American hospitals have developed programs for patients on medicine wards that feature volunteers coming in to check on patients as a part of what is referred to as the HELP programs. There are six interventions in the HELP program. Number one is optimizing vision, such as ensuring access to glasses and making sure they are clean. Number two is optimizing hearing. Number three is frequently reorienting the patient. Number four is ensuring adequate hydration and nutrition. Number five is early mobilization by physiotherapy. And number six is non-pharmacologic sleep promotion. So for example, herbal teas and warm blankets. In Mrs. M's case, treating her underlying infection and using these non-pharmacologic strategies was effective in treating her delirium. And we didn't need to resort to sedating medications. Delirium is complex, but if you remember DIMS, you are off to a great start when it comes to identifying a root cause. Remember that the interprofessional team and non-pharmacologic strategies are important for preventing and managing delirium. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Clerk Commute podcast. Catch you in your next commute.